Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, episode 3.29, After Braddock. Last time, when we left off, the French and Indian War had really just gotten launched, with Braddock's march to take Fort Duquesne. Things were not off to an auspicious start. Braddock's flying column had been absolutely devastated in a crushingly lopsided loss. Braddock himself was mortally wounded in the battle. With Braddock dead, command of the British forces in North America fell to William Shirley. Though Shirley was both bright and ambitious, he had exactly zero military experience. However, that mattered little, and Shirley was now the guy calling the shots. Of the objectives in the opening stages of the war, there is little question that Braddock's is the most famous. It is almost certainly the most famous battle in the colonial era of the United States, right up until the opening salvos of the American Revolution. Well, Braddock's defeat was complete and undoubtedly crushing, we must remember that it was only part of an overall attack plan that contained four separate primary objectives. Besides Braddock's mission to take Fort Duquesne, there was a planned mission to take Fort Niagara, the French forts along the Chignecto Isthmus in Nova Scotia, and Fort St. Frederick at Crown Point. This week, we are going to spend our time focusing on those other three plans. Now, all three plans are taking place roughly contemporaneously with each other. So, rather than just jump back and forth between the three, we are going to just take one at a time. Just know that these events are happening during that second half of 1755 and moving towards 1756. Of all the objectives during the first part of the war, it was Fort Niagara that was probably the most important of them all. We discussed last week that this was not really a secret to those involved. Despite being enemies, as we will see later today, both Johnson and Shirley advocated to Braddock that he bypass Fort Duquesne altogether. Both men agreed that the real prize was Fort Niagara. Fort Niagara was a choke point for the French. If the British could capture it, they would effectively sever French communication and supply lines, leaving the forts to the south, including Fort Duquesne, dangerously exposed and isolated. Braddock, despite agreeing with the assessment, had his orders, which he did not plan to deviate from. His target was going to be Fort Duquesne. The command of this expedition, therefore, to Fort Niagara, fell into the hands of the second-in-command, and now the first-in-command with Braddock's death, Governor of Massachusetts, William Shirley. Again, Shirley was not exactly a military man. He was by all accounts intelligent, ambitious, and clever. However, to say that Shirley was going to have an easy go of things would be entirely incorrect. You see, Shirley was facing a difficulty that his prior superior in Braddock was not facing. Specifically, Shirley was in direct competition for resources, especially with William Johnson. Johnson and Shirley were competing for favor with the crown and, as we are going to see, would often find themselves in direct competition for both men and supplies. Among the biggest problems for both Shirley and Johnson is the fact that both Shirley's Niagara Expedition and Johnson's Crown Point Expedition were set to originate in Albany, New York. Johnson and Shirley were in competition, something that would have been true regardless of where their entry point to the war was going to be. 
Johnson was a skilled frontiersman and, importantly, a close friend of New York Governor James Delancey. Recalling our discussion from last time regarding the very real competition between the colonies, it should therefore not come as a surprise that there was a significant amount of animosity and competition between New York and Massachusetts, where Shirley himself reigned. However, having both expeditions launching directly from Albany at the same time put Johnson and Shirley into an even more contentious competition with one another. Being that the recruiting job was going to be in New York, the advantage went to Johnson. Shirley would spend much of the Niagara expedition dealing with serious supply shortages as Johnson fought to undercut him at every turn. This was no mere squabble either. Even during the Niagara expedition, Delancey was working hard to have Shirley's command stripped away from him. For Johnson, a major source of his anger seems to have stemmed out of the fact that Shirley shifted a large number of men away from Johnson's own mission to Crown Point and brought them over to his expedition against Fort Niagara. Where Johnson was able to directly strike back at Shirley came regarding Indian cooperation. Shirley simply lacked the relationships that Johnson shared with the Mohawk. Johnson, angry over Shirley taking his men, turned to James Delancey, who in return refused to provide Shirley with a Mohawk guide. Shirley, lacking the connections to the Mohawk that Johnson enjoyed, felt flat in his attempts to get a guide himself. As we saw with Braddock, these guides were critical. They knew the land better than anybody else. Lacking such a guide was going to put Shirley at a very distinct disadvantage as he set off for the most critical mission of Braddock's original plan. Leaving Albany in July 1755, Shirley had a daunting mission in front of him. The trip between Albany and Fort Niagara was nearly 400 miles. It was under these circumstances in August 1755 that Shirley would learn about the catastrophic outcome of Braddock's mission. For Shirley, that meant that he suddenly found himself in command of the British war effort. However, the news also brought profound sorrow to the Massachusetts governor. Among those killed on Braddock's march had been William Shirley Jr., serving as Braddock's secretary. The younger Shirley had been shot and killed during the massacre. William Shirley suddenly found himself in charge of a war, something that he had no training for. He was dealing with hostilities not just from the French, but from men such as Delancey and Johnson. He was stuck with a logistical nightmare as battles raged between British colonial commanders as everybody fought for supplies and men. And now, on top of it all, Shirley had to cope with the loss of his son, meaning that he was doing all of this in the middle of grieving a tremendous loss. To say that it was a rough time to be William Shirley would be an understatement. Shirley had originally brought along some 2,500 men. Much like Shirley himself, one of the common themes amongst these men is the serious lack of anything resembling combat experience. The trip to Fort Niagara was difficult and was plagued by supply problems. However, one of the biggest issues for Shirley is the serious lack of discipline amongst the raw colonial recruits, meaning that when things were trending in the wrong direction, they were just as likely to jump ship as continue on with the mission. By the time they reached the small fort at Oswego, Shirley had lost over 800 of his men to desertion. Arriving at Fort Oswego in the middle of August, Shirley was in a rough spot. 
The march had been exhausting, and his men were in desperate need of rest. Fort Oswego, now named Fort Ontario, was located along the shores of Lake Ontario. For surely this was more than simply a spot to catch his breath. It provided the launching point for the final push to Niagara itself. However, by the time Shirley arrived, it was abundantly clear that he was in a terrible place. First, the fort was really only a fort in name only. It was in a complete state of disrepair and offered little in the way of protection. It certainly was not in a place where it was in sufficient condition to act as a staging area for the final push across the lake. Before Shirley could push forward, he would need to waste valuable time repairing the fort. Combine this with the state of his army, the fact that they still needed to build the boats to take across Lake Ontario to Niagara, as well as the crippling supply shortages, and any serious hope of completing the expedition that year was off. There was simply too much work to be done for an army that was suffering from both exhaustion, large-scale desertion, as well as serious supply shortages. For Shirley, the only actual option that he was going to have was going to be hunkering down at Fort Oswego for the winter and continuing to Niagara in the spring. This, too, however, brought complications for Shirley. At the most base level, Shirley was desperately undersupplied. Shirley had made no plans to spend the winter at Oswego and therefore failed to make any kind of provisions for it. Throughout the winter months, the lack of provisions would bring a far greater enemy than the French. It brought disease and starvation. All the men could really do was fortify Oswego enough to protect from potential French incursion, while at the same time doing all they could not to starve to death. By the time that the spring rolled around, Shirley knew that there was basically zero hope of a campaign against Niagara. His men were just too sick and depleted from the harsh winter. And just like that, the most strategically important of the expeditions came to an unceremonious end, without ever getting within 150 miles of their intended target. Okay, so we know that Braddock's march was an epic failure. Now, we know that Shirley's expedition to Fort Niagara would fizzle out 150 miles away from even reaching its target. The question now becomes if William Johnson could really stick it to his rival Shirley and deliver a much-needed win in an otherwise terrible year. Johnson, on the surface, was going to have an easier go of things than Shirley did. He had an easier path to follow, a shorter distance to go and a better supply chain as he enjoyed help from the Mohawk. Furthermore, Fort St. Frederick was a significantly softer target than was Fort Niagara. However, even before Johnson left Albany, he had two very serious problems that were about to make his chance of success considerably lower. The first problem that he had came with the death of Braddock. Along with the massive human loss that came with Braddock's army, there was also the matter of captured baggage. With the army broken and fleeing and doing their best not to get scalped, a great deal of baggage got left behind. Included in this now captured baggage was Braddock's own set of plans. So the British had to assume by this point that the French knew exactly what the plans were. Well, this would have been true for Shirley as well. 
nobody would have been the slightest bit surprised in Fort Niagara. It was the obvious target, and therefore telegraphing the French that the British had plans to take it would have hardly come as much of a shock. For Crown Point, that was a mission that the British would have preferred the French not to be explicitly told about. The second problem for Johnson comes from something we briefly mentioned last time, but did not investigate much further. If you will recall from our last episode, the British Navy under Admiral Edward Boscoin was going up to blockade the St. Lawrence River, and therefore prevent reinforcements from reaching Quebec and areas further south. As has been the theme so far, the mission by Boscoin was completely ineffective. As it would turn out, his blockade was extremely porous, meaning that of the 3,000 French regulars that had been sent across the ocean as reinforcements, Boscoin only managed to stop around 400 of them. Which, yeah, that's not great. Practically speaking, this meant that the British were going to have to deal with far more troops than they had initially expected. Among those who had slipped through the blockade was Baron Jean Armand de Discao, who had been sent to take over control of the French forces in North America. Boscoin had sailed from Plymouth just days before Discao had left from France, along with his 3,000 men with both parties arriving in late April and early May 1755. In addition to their new military commander, the Marquis de Vaudreuil was coming over to become the new governor of Canada. Just a quick note. If you are remembering that name from Queen Anne's War, this is not the same Vaudreuil that we had discussed then, but rather it is his son. So no, the guy is not super old. Also, as a further side note, during those episodes, I had pronounced his name, Vaudreuil. I was informed after the fact that Vaudreuil was a much better pronunciation. I will remind you all that I most definitely do not speak French, and assure you that I am doing my best not to butcher all of these French names. And guys, there are so many French names. So, I will continue doing my best, to obviously differing degrees of success. By the end of June, both of the men had slipped through Boscoin's blockade. This draws into focus the serious missed opportunity here by the failure of Boscoin. Had his mission been a success, not only could he have potentially captured the French military commander, but also the governor of the entire province. This would have been a much-needed British victory at a time where they desperately needed a victory. Alas, it was not meant to be. Boscoin's blockade was easily bypassed by both Discao and Valroy. The plan for Johnson was first to proceed to Fort Edward, along the Upper Hudson. From there, the bulk of his army would move to the southern banks of the newly named by Johnson himself, Lake George. There, they would make camp and prepare boats which they would then use to cover the 50 miles across the lake to Crown Point itself. Arriving in early September, work quickly began on getting the boats ready. Dieskow had relied on some poor intelligence regarding the strength of Johnson's army, and had hastened to move some 3,000 troops to reinforce Crown Point. Dieskow, however, was looking at more than just a mere defensive mission. Rather, he was quickly making plans for an attack of his own. For this attack, 
these cow picked Fort Edward. The intelligence at the moment had the fort as being somewhat of a soft target, as the fort was not exactly in ideal shape. It is at this point, however, where things get a bit derailed for Dieskau when the Mohawks fighting with the French informed him that they had absolutely no intention of attacking a fortified camp. As an alternative, however, they turned their attention to what was actually the majority of Johnson's army, which was hanging out on the banks of Lake George to the south of Lake Champlain, prepping those boats and not putting much work into the fortifications of their new camp. It is somewhat unclear exactly what Dieskau actually knew at this moment. He may have been tipped off further to the fact that there were far fewer people hanging out at Fort Edward than he had originally believed. Dieskau was looking to deal a big blow to the British, akin to the victory that Contracor had scored against Braddock. What we do know is that Dieskau learned from his Mohawk scouts that most of Johnson's army was actually at Dieskau's rear, back along the banks of Lake George. Deciding that his big chance of victory was actually behind him, Dieskau turned around and moved back towards the main bulk of Johnson's army. Before moving forward, I want to make a quick note regarding the Mohawks. Although we have discussed the Mohawks as being most closely aligned to the British, they were in fact not completely uniform on that. There were Mohawks who fought for the French as well, hence our situation here, where we are going to see them leading events on both sides of the conflict. Now it is Johnson's turn to have some bad luck. His own Mohawk scouts became aware of a 1,500-man French army lurking around Fort Edward. Johnson, obviously concerned about this development, sent reinforcements racing back to reinforce Fort Edward. Herein lies the problem. Recall from just a moment ago when I mentioned that Dieskau's Mohawk allies said that Johnson's army was along the banks of Lake George? And then Dieskau turned his army around and marched back towards that encampment? Well, with the British moving from Lake George to Fort Edward and Dieskau's army doing the opposite, the two groups were now on a collision course. On September 8th, with Mohawk Chief Hendrick at their head, right around a thousand men in Johnson's army began the trek back towards Fort Edward. Tipped off to the movement, Dieskau had his men halt their advance and prepared to meet the approaching British. The British and the Mohawk forces walked directly into a trap that is at least somewhat reminiscent of what happened to Braddock. Despite Hendrick being possibly tipped off himself of the coming ambush at literally the very last moment, gunfire erupted and quickly some 30 Mohawk, including Hendrick himself, lie dead. The British briefly attempted to go on the offensive under Colonel Ephraim Williams of Massachusetts, who was also the chief commander of this mission. Williams, however, would not fare well, and quickly his hopes of trying to swing to the offensive end came to a close when 50 of his men, as well as Williams personally, were killed. So, we have an ambush. We have the officers and men getting cut down by the French and Indian gunfire. Everything here sounds disturbingly like Braddock's march. However, it is here where the primary difference would come into play. First, the British-aligned Mohawk quickly realized how dire of a situation that they were in and began an orderly retreat, rather than attempting to fight an obviously lost battle. Second, whereas Braddock's army of British regulars did all they could to form ranks and fight back, 
it was ironically the lack of discipline of the provincial troops that would prevent a catastrophe. The colonists did not stand around trying to form ranks. Rather, they dropped what they were doing and decided that it was a pretty good time to get out of there. While a lack of discipline in battle is not great, in this situation it actually worked out pretty well for the British. The colonial troops, deciding that they had zero interest in being shot, booked it the other direction, preventing a more wide-scale massacre. With Johnson's army now quickly retreating to Lake George, the French decided to press their advantage. It was helpful for the British that the battle was taking place close enough to Lake George that those back along the banks of the lake were able to hear the commotion. They were able to rapidly fortify the location. Of course, this would not be some indestructible fortress. We are not talking about the Theodosian walls or anything. However, it was at least something that provided the fleeing provincials a fallback point where they could take cover. Mostly, it was the men back at the lake turning over the boats that they had been building and aiming their cannons out at the main road. Reaching the British location, the French-Indian allies suddenly decided that they themselves had little interest in slamming into a, albeit poorly, fortified location. Much to the chagrin of Dees Cow. Well, his Indian allies had little interest in dying, Dieskau ordered his French troops to rush the British position. Predictably, this did not go well for the French. The British suddenly opened up from their position of cover and quickly killed scores of Frenchmen. This would quickly end the French advance. For the next several hours after that, both sides engaged in a kind of long-range fire battle that accomplished little. Muskets are not well regarded for their long-range accuracy, making the next several hours more of a campaign of harassment rather than anything containing real strategic aims. This would continue until the French withdrew. Despite the fact that the British would hold their ground, this first battle would mean the disheartening loss of the Mohawk support for the British. The Mohawk were not interested in killing their fellow tribesmen. The British Mohawk allies would withdraw following the battle with the stated purpose of burying their dead. Perhaps predictably, they did not return. This would mark a general return to neutrality, not just for the Mohawk, but for the Iroquois as a whole. During the battle, the British would score one key victory. Dieskau himself was wounded and captured. His war was over as he would remain a French prisoner of war for the rest of the conflict only being released in 1763. The gunshot wound suffered by Dieskau would be a constant source of health problems for the remainder of his life. The Battle of Lake George was a nominal British victory. They held their location and repulsed the French. With that said, however, the battle was more realistically a stalemate. Both sides suffered around the same number of casualties. Neither side had been so wounded by the battle that it would affect their ability to continue the fight. The French, after withdrawing from the field, moved back to Ticonderoga, located at the point where Lake George and Lake Champlain converged. There, they would construct Fort Corralin. The British, for their part, would build Fort William Henry across the lake. For William Johnson, this would mark the end of his expedition to Crown Point. Unlike Shirley, Johnson was able to remain in the field. He was not forced to pull back. However, he suddenly found himself in an unexpected battle for control over Lake George. 
with the French controlling Ticonderoga. Johnson could no longer proceed via the waterway to Crown Point. Johnson would instead end up in his own fort as years of battles over the lake would ensue. We are going to leave William Johnson and his men in Fort William Henry for now. Though, I assure you, we are going to be back. Would it really be a war between the French and the British in 18th century North America without some action in Acadia? Of course not. The question, however, becomes, would Acadia continue in the tradition of 1755 and prove to be a British disaster? Acadia presented the British with unique problems. The British were in control of the region and had been since Queen Anne's War some 40 years earlier. However, although the British had conquered Acadia, they were faced with the real problem that they were the minority population in the region. The British had genuine concerns that the French living in Acadia would be more than happy to undercut British war efforts and hand the region right back over to the French. Importantly, this mission was something of a pet project for William Shirley. Shirley, as the governor of Massachusetts, unsurprisingly had had his eyes on Acadia and indeed had been working on the invasion plans for well over a year. The concern for the British were a pair of forts, Fort Beauséjour and Fort Gaspiro, which were located on the Chignecto Isthmus. The Chignecto Isthmus is that small strip of land that connects Nova Scotia to the mainland portion of Canada. For the British, the fort stood as something of a reminder to the colonists living in Acadia that the French had not forgotten that they existed. It meant that pragmatically, should the French in the region do anything against the British, they had a fallback point where they would be safe. The British, therefore, were eager to remove the symbol of French power and authority from the landscape. The Acadians were not exactly taking actions to make things better either. For years, the British had tried to get loyalty oaths from the local population. However, the Catholic Acadians were not about to risk their immortal souls to swear fealty to a Protestant monarch. The plan, therefore, was that men under the command of Major General John Winslow would proceed first to Fort Lawrence, located nearby Fort Balsajour. From there, Winslow, along with approximately 2,000 provincial troops and 270 British regulars, would move on to the main objective, Fort Balsajour itself. The British, in this particular instance, moved efficiently, and by the time mid-June rolled around, they had laid siege to the fort. Quickly realizing that their situation was hopeless and not wanting to get blasted to bits, the French surrendered the fort on June the 16th. Meanwhile, back at Fort Gaspireau, the men inside that fort were watching the events back at Balsajour with increasing anxiety. Those men quickly decided that they were not interested in playing and got out while they still had time. Fort Gaspireau fell without a single shot being fired. The fall of the forts would mark the high water mark for the British war effort during that first year. Of the four expeditions planned for 1755, it was the only one to actually succeed. Though it is worth noting that this is actually going on prior to the events surrounding Shirley, Johnson, or even Braddock. So at the time of the British victory, nobody is yet aware of just how bad 1755 is going to go. However, the British actions in Acadia would be remembered as much more than a relatively easy victory over a couple of French forts. 
the legacy of this expedition is going to come in the form of the forced relocation of the Acadian population. Following a last attempt, a failed attempt, to secure an oath of loyalty from the local population, the governor of Nova Scotia ordered the relocation of the local Acadian population down to the southern 13 colonies. The deportations would come in waves and would ultimately remove the vast majority of the French Acadians living in the region. The plan was that the people would be sent down to the British colonies in North America, where they would become indentured servants. Their period of indenture would prove enough to make them forget about their home to the north. However, just to be sure, the British made sure to absolutely devastate the local communities. Homes and farms were destroyed. Dams and levees were breached to flood the land. The British stopped just short of salting the earth in order to ensure that there was nothing left for the Acadians to come home to. Blame for the events in Acadia can be pointed largely at William Shirley himself. Shirley had long known that Massachusetts colonists had been interested in Acadia. Their population was booming and people were desperate for room to expand. It had been Massachusetts previously that had marched on Acadia, and they knew the region well. In the mind of William Shirley and the Nova Scotia governor, Charles Lawrence, Acadia presented a chance to kill two birds with one stone. By deporting the local French population, you remove the risk that comes along with having a French majority in the region, while at the same time opening up new lands for New England expansion. It should be noted that several colonists would end up joining with the Micmac tribe, who were already hostile towards the British. Knowing that this tribe was hostile, the British did what they could to eliminate the tribe from the region. The British, however, would end up with a sustained battle between the two groups for control of what was once Acadia. This would last until a treaty between the British and Micmac was reached in 1758. But that only comes after a whole lot of blood was already spilled. As for the French who were deported from Acadia, most never did return to the region. British efforts had made sure that there was nothing left to return to, making it nearly impossible to ever get a foothold in Acadia again for the deported French. The events in Acadia are shocking. Historian Fred Anderson openly calls the event an ethnic cleansing. Thousands of civilians were forced from their homes and their lands during this campaign of deportation. Local Indian tribes were hunted down and killed. Despite the ugliness of the event, however, the New England colonists seemed to have few concerns with the outcome. For them, they had scored a major victory over an enemy that they had been fighting for the last 40 years. Few stopped to question the morality of what had just occurred. If 1755 marked the real beginning of the French and Indian War, it is impossible to view it as anything but a complete disaster for the British. Braddock's army of British regulars had been massacred on the banks of the Monongahela River. William Shirley made it within 150 miles of his objective before he was forced to turn around and head back. William Johnson found himself pinned down up at Lake George, unable to advance towards Crown Point. The only victory of the entire year for the British had come in Acadia, an event that was followed up by a mass-forced deportation of the local population. No matter how you spin it, it had just been a very rough year for the British. The war had not gotten off to the rousing start that they had all hoped for. Next time we are going to jump back into 1756 
as we examine just how the British planned to pick up the pieces following a disastrous 1755. Until then, I hope you all have a wonderful two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and staying safe. And I will see you back here next time, where we will look at the campaigns of 1756. 